0: Hey guys, I recently delivered a learning session to CPA Australia in front of 50 accountants Online and we went through questions like my trigger point to make property full-time How to buy property interstate where to buy how to buy my best tips in the current? 2023 property market and just teaching all of these wonderful accountants how to zoom out and Think about leaving their nine-to-five or at least being able to set up their financial future so they can retire early We went through the mechanics of property investing and a whole bunch of inspiration of why they should do so too so much we covered in more than an hour-long session with cpa australia amazing amazing accounting organization i was grateful to be hosted by yuki huang check it out there's so much gold in there and let me know what you think here we go Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name's PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights, or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyers agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence, and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you.
1: The other question is coming up. So when you're hitting that trigger point, you say, okay, that's full-time job is just not why I really enjoy i uh, enjoy it. I want to run my own like own show or running own business. I'm pretty sure some of our members also have this concern saying look and uh, currently like the economic market is not strong enough, we mm. think about, you know, maybe I should take a second job or, you know, doing something, I'm really interested in it. So what's the trigger point for you and decided, okay, guys, that's it. I want to quit these, uh, you know, nine to five jobs. Um,
0: yeah.
1: yeah.
0: It's a good question. I think there was like two trigger points and at the time, I, I don't know if I thought of them as trigger points, but in hindsight, they probably were. I think the first one is that Um, around 2015, 16, I'd already had a few properties and I, and I realized that my pay increases from like just increasing the rents every year, according to whatever the market rent was like at that time, I was getting more of a pay increase through the real estate investments every year than my actual job. So i was like hang on a second like i'm not even spending any time on real estate um but that's giving me more of a pay increase every year than like a three percent pay increase or you have to fight i remember like you know as kind of employees we would just think okay if i get a five out of five star rating um this year then maybe my my boss will give me a four percent pay rise or i might scrape through like a two percent pay rise and so like, we would make such a big deal out of it and no disrespect to anyone who's who's kind of going through that. But then here my properties were like getting a much bigger pay rise and there was no politics involved and there was no like any effort whatsoever. So I was like, hang on a second, like that doesn't quite sound right. You know, there's there's, some, there's something in this that I should invest more heavily in terms of my energy, my time and my focus. Um, so it was really at that point where I started to think, you know, if this, if my real estate investments can give me a passive income enough to like live off, then I can leave my nine to five and really invest more and more into real estate and and do more and more with real estate to scale that up. So that was like the first trigger point. And I think the second trigger point was, you know, even though I was in a, I would say semi, um, influential and, and perhaps high-ranking role at Virgin, I was finding that I wasn't able to actually make that much of a difference. So I'm sure a lot of accountants can relate to that. And of course, no disrespect to any companies or firms that you work in or work for, but in big corporate Australia, you're just a small statistics. And, And no matter, I don't know, this is highly controversial, no matter how much they kind of value employees, they value the human resources, that they value their people, at the end of the day, like I think you're just another person. You're just another statistic. And at least that's how I thought about it. And I was reporting directly to the CEO. So it was a fairly high uh, profile role, but I was finding that um, all the PowerPoint decks that I was creating and presenting to the CEO, the C-suite, the board, um, all the meetings that I was in with all the um, executive GMs, etc., like there was just so much politics to get anything done. Um, I think my, my biggest achievement to some extent that is tangible was, um, I don't know if anyone flies Virgin, but we released, um, economy X, which is like the front row of the economy cabin. It's almost like a premium economy part of domestic, um, flights and Virgin Australia. And that was like a $40 million, um, $40 million revenue upside initiative that I came up with. And it cost about $5 million to implement CapEx wise. And on, a, on an ongoing basis, it was like wildly profitable, like almost $40 million in net marginal um, profit. And all I really got for that was like a pat on the back and like a three and a half percent pay rise. So I was like, hang on a second. Like I'm. It took me so much blood, blood, sweat and tears to convince you guys to do this. It's made the company so much profit, which is actually a huge thing because you're a loss-making entity. And yet I'm not feeling valued. I'm not feeling like what I've done is like, changed (laughs) too much anything at all except for just shareholder value and so i felt that i needed to do something that actually had more of a human impact like not just b2b but b2c like change people's lives in the humble way that, that I could and that's when I started kind of mentoring people in property just on the side while working mostly just for free actually and and that kind of was giving me more satisfaction and reward than my you could say highly paid
1: nine to five that's nice yeah I totally understand because I I work in the banking industry sorry I can see this how much I've uh, you know hard work from all those bankers to looking for deals customers and to the end they just get like the bonus. Sometimes they mark down for a lot of reasons, which I don't see was the point there. But we're not encouraging you guys to quit your job. No. Right for sure. <laughs> um yeah, just you know, sharing some of what we thought and then yeah, totally agree with you. So the other question is we probably people want to more find out is what you doing as a like um property investment coach like what's your daily job looks like
0: yeah sure i think like what a a property investment coach or any coach in any field really does is like they they teach people how to fish and so what i don't do is say oh um yuki like i've got this amazing property deal that's going to make you a million dollars it will get allow you to retire in a year's time sign on the dotted line. like that's not what i do what i do do is teach you just like you know all of the people on the call um, by and large you guys are accountants you've done the cpa um, qualification you've learned how to become an accountant and you're proficient at accounting like you know millions of miles ahead of me and i wouldn't even try to to do accounting compared to to what everyone here can do so similarly in wealth generation for yourself as opposed to others or as opposed to counting money i'm interested in making money for myself and that's what people are interested in too and so that's what i teach them how to do through real estate Um, in australia it's a very unique market where unlike the US and maybe some other geographies, real estate can be done completely passively. And this was like the um, epiphany, you could say, that I stumbled upon that you can actually continue to to do your day job, like um, Yuki was saying, you don't have to quit your job. You can do this on the side and slowly, slowly transform your active income, like if you run a business or you get a PIG income, transform that active income into passive income, because I know that when you're well paid, you know, that's great. And you think that everything will be fantastic. But the number of times I've seen like the executive assistant of a partner, let's say at PwC or Deloitte, the partner's earning 300 to 500K plus bonus, you know, living a really good lifestyle, you know, great for that person, good on them. The EA or the, the personal assistant is maybe making 80 to 120, maybe 100 to 150K, depending on their stature in the company. And so they're not making half a million dollars, but that EA or PA has more net wealth than the partner. And the reason is they're investing it wisely, whereas the partner might just be te- keeping it in the bank or giving it to their financial advisor, no uh, offense to any financial advisors out there and just investing it in the stock market which is highly volatile goes up and down dividends come and go in the pa is investing it into real estate assets which are going up providing rent etc cetera, etc cetera. and then 10 20 30 years later when both of those the ea stops working and the partner stops working the partners earned so much more during their life but they've never actually transferred that active income to passive income so when they stop working they realize, hang on, I can't afford the lifestyle that I was living for the last 30 years. Whereas the PA is like, actually, I can afford the lifestyle that I was living, and then some, because I took care of my nest egg. Okay, I didn't just keep it in the bank. I didn't just outsource it to others to manage. I actually learned financial literacy. And I think that was my biggest thing that I learned, and I'm trying to impart on others as a coach, as you said, Um, financial literacy. If you actually, no one teaches you, not at school, not at university, you can do like a finance degree like I did, but uh, from a really good university, but they never actually taught me how to make money. They only taught me how to make others money, my employer money. They never actually taught me how to make money myself. And I think if you can you know teach a man or teach a woman how to fish then they can fish for a lifetime so that that's really my my aim to teach people how to develop a property strategy teach them how to select the right suburbs teach them how to select the right properties how to value them how to negotiate and how to scale using finance techniques tax techniques etc cetera, etc cetera.
1: that sounds very achievable so um the other question i probably ask is I think is you that you're you know sh- like uh, sharing your knowledge and some like um your thought and also really uh, also plus a lot of data um sharing uh, through the um Facebook, your uh, blogs or YouTube. What did you find the most challenging part for those young investors who were you know new to the market? What's are the challenges they're facing currently?
0: Sure, sure. I think like the biggest thing that the biggest challenge or the biggest thing that causes fear in the hearts of people who go down the property investing route is just the amount of misinformation or conflicting information or hidden agendas or hidden biases or innuendos that exist in the Australian property marketplace. So for example, when I was getting into it initially back in 2011, um, I tried to learn about property investing by going to different seminars and you go to a seminar i don't know if anyone here has been to a property seminar but there's normally someone on stage and they're wearing like a nice suit unlike me right now and they're talking like the big game they have a cool powerpoint slide and they will be like this property will go up by this much and this will change your life and they'll show you a picture of you now and then a picture of you driving a mercedes gle in like five years time or whatever it is and Honestly, it's just so, there's so many sharks, there's so many charlatans, there's so much um, uh, poor form that exists in the real estate market and normally you know, they try to force you a property. Like I remember, at least for myself, there would be a seminar that I'd go to and it all sounded great but at the end of the seminar they'd say, go to the back of the room, we have a special discount right now if you buy this property or put down a deposit or do XYZ. And so that really put me off. And I think that really puts a lot of people off because there's 25, 26 million people who live in Australia, excluding the children. Everyone is a property expert. You know, you you have a barbecue or you have a gathering at home or you go to even over the water cooler or with your colleagues at work. Everyone's like, you know, whether in Sydney or Melbourne, wherever, everyone has like an opinion. Oh yeah, this suburb's doing well. That suburb's not going to do well. That's, you know, I made this much money. I lost this much money. Everyone's an expert in real estate. but. I tried to cut through that by looking at true data. And that's really somewhat, that was really something that no one had done um, back then. So because I had a background in investment banking and I studied econometrics at university, I was able to um, get the raw data for 30 years of Australian history, uh, real estate history, and actually run statistical models like multivariate regression analysis to actually see what truly correlates with capital growth. And I know we're getting a bit technical here, but I quickly found that it's actually not the things that people think it is. It's actually not proximity to CBD. It's actually not, you know, like the the properties that grow the most are where the people make the most incomes. It's not that Sydney and Melbourne grow far more than other areas around Australia. So I was like, okay, now I'm actually starting to understand what truly drives property markets and i was able to build like a data system so i know everyone here is probably very into data because you're accountant so i was the same like i wasn't an accountant but an investment banker basically lives and dies by data on a daily basis um so i think that's the biggest challenge that people have they they go into property investing because a friend told them to invest here or a colleague told them to invest here or an expert where you saw a facebook ad or a youtube ad or this and that you know um invest here or do that or do this and then they they really struggle their statistics are that more than 70 percent of investors don't get past the first property and so naturally they think property investing doesn't work i need to double down in my nine to five in my business make wealth that way but if you can actually use data and do things in a more just objective way stripping out the opinion, stripping out the subjectivity, then you can get to two, three, four, five, six, seven properties and use that as a vehicle for retirement. Um, I think, yeah, that, that's sort of the best way to overcome that challenge that new investors face of just information overload and people just trying to like take your money basically.
1: I agree because I, I actually, um my job is helping like business owner or um like individual to getting the lending done so more like a mortgage size or a business lending what i found is some of my clients they like for example they're doctors they they're very busy for their daily job um but when actually going to that investment part they feel like really lost so to the end they actually found the buyer agents mm-hmm. um so just recently one of my clients she found she's a doctor and she's based in Queensland as well so she found the buyer agent the whole transaction she just no idea what they put, like looking for a property for her and the end i think she they found the property at wa and luckily enough that property i think it's just in the regional area somewhere you know down like small town i have no idea how they got that property for her but <laughs> um the transaction went through and to the end even you know the the window changed the settlement, they she did she has no idea until the bank let me know Say, oh look there's a settlement chain. So it's so a really lost and then she said, oh I will only recommend those by agents. Right, uh, right. Which I understand. So but because she's quite busy, she doesn't have the time, like let we say there was a what we can see during the COVID period is a lot of like movement buying the uh investment properties from interstate. Um so for those investors or the people who are interested in to purchase property in interstate, what's the advice or suggestion you will be giving to them like as the starting point? Because obviously we cannot like travel to the interstate to look at the properties every weekend, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I'll just um, add to that point as well um, that you made. I really feel that, like I said before, no one cares about your money as much as you do yourself. And so, like accountants will tell you and with all love and respect, I am saying this, um, you know, a lot of accountants suggest people buy negatively geared properties, which means that on a yearly basis, the expenses are more than the rental income of the property. And they suggest this because it obviously saves tax. You make a rental loss and you can offset your income. And a lot of, um, I would say, novice property investors think this is a fantastic idea. Like who doesn't want to save tax legally, of course, But if you just step back and think about it, why would you buy an asset that you're going to lose a dollar on only to get half of that back, get 50 cents back on tax? Like you're still down 50 cents, right? It's still negatively geared. So, um, in that case, a lot of accountants, maybe um, I would say, innocently lead their clients astray. And and same with uh, buyer's agents. I think there are some good buyer's agents out there but if you're just allowing someone else to make a half a million a million dollar decision for you then you kind of have to ask yourself like are you financially literate enough to manage them because if you have to manage them um, you're making the biggest transaction that you will in your entire life like a house is expensive right i, I know people who buy cars on a whim you know, f- you know five minute decision i want this car or i want that car Um, A house is not like that. It's much, 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 much more expensive. You can't just outsource it. And so I think if you're spending so much time, you know, like basically 40, 50 hours a week to earn a salary of 60K, 100K, 150K, 200K, whatever it is, but you're letting someone else invest 500K, 1,000, like a, a million dollars with no input of time on yourself, like I know you're busy with no input of time at all, then it just doesn't add up. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense. And to your point around interstate investing, actually it it doesn't take that much time. It honestly doesn't take that much time. A lot of people in Sydney and Melbourne, they only buy in Sydney and Melbourne because they're like, oh, at least I can inspect it. At least I can drive past it. At least I can have that emotional feeling that it's just there, right? But actually, it, property investing is all about the numbers. And I think accountants are, you know, expert in numbers more so than almost any other profession. And so when you want to buy an interstate property, and let's face it, all properties in Sydney and Melbourne, anything half decent is probably at least six, seven hundred, if not one million dollars plus. So there's a huge buy in cost which there isn't in a place like Brisbane or Perth or Adelaide or regional Australia, you can buy as little as 300K, so it's more accessible. And also in Sydney and Melbourne, basically every single property is going to cost you money on a, on a yearly basis to hold, because the yield or the the rental income is not that great. Whereas in Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, other regional parts of Australia the rental income, the yield is much higher. So it makes a lot of sense to at least be open to explore other places. And so the natural, you know, question becomes, well, but then it's really hard to buy interstate. You know, I don't have time to catch flights every weekend. I don't know how to do that. And this is really something that I discovered when I bought my first property living in Sydney, I bought in East Gosford, which is towards Newcastle. I just found that if I could select the right suburb based on data, and then select the right part of that or pocket of that suburb based on other both quantitative and qualitative data, qualitative data including like flood zones, flight paths, and seeing what the topography of the land was. You know, you don't want to buy a sloped property, et cetera, et cetera. Then the next step, I could just call a local property manager and they would do the inspection for me. So they would go through that property and tell me if there was anything wrong with it, if the pictures on real estate or domain were fake or just like misleading, um, and whether that property actually had tenant appeal or future um, resaleability, future owner-occupier appeal. And when I asked my property manager to do this, I was kind of half expecting them to charge me a lot of money because it's like, yeah, it's a decent amount of work. But they said, no, we don't charge money for this because if you do end up buying it, you know, then we get to manage that property for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So it's in our best interest to find you something that's actually low maintenance, not going to cause us a hassle. It's going to be a really low, like set and forget, low headache type property. And when I kind of realized that property managers could do this, I was like, hang on a second. Now I don't need to just look in my backyard I can use data objectively to point me to whatever the best suburbs are nationally. There's fifteen thousand suburbs in Australia, and I can just call local property manager in, in that area to do the inspections for me. And then, of course, anyone who's bought a property, you know that um, you also get a building and pest inspection done before you go unconditional on that contract. So, a building and pest inspection means that a like more professional, um, certified. A builder comes through and sees if there's any cracks or anything like structurally wrong with the property, termites, etc. And with these two stage gates, or with these two, um, you could say, um, avenues of due diligence, then I can be comfortable that I've never seen that property. I'll probably never see that property but it's gonna be a really, really strong investment. There's nothing gonna go wrong with it. And as I go through my tenure of holding that property, my property manager will continue to collect the rent. If the tenant leaves, they'll find a new tenant. If there's maintenance to be required, they'll get the quotes, they'll do all of that. And that really allows me to maximize my return on investment because it's very unlikely that the best growth suburbs are in your backyard. It's probably likely that they're not just in your backyard. They're elsewhere, and so that really helps you to scale a portfolio and just maximize your return on investment. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but that was a yes.
1: A... Yes, I already writing down. So I'll start. I will start calling the property managers. Yes, <laughs> doing the inspection. They're wonderful really people. Idea. They're
0: not agents. Like they're not real estate agents. Yes. People don't realize they're not trying to sell you the property. They're that's different right. from that's real right. estate
1: they're, agents. It's a different region for from that point that's right Um, yes so when you talk about okay we're looking at the data so can you share with us a little bit what's the data you're normally looking at when you're looking for your own like investment properties
0: yeah sure well basically like it's no secret and i can kind of go go into it a little bit as well we we look at 30 to 35 data metrics and it's just like with anything you economics 101 you learn that prices rise when demand is more than supply, right? And prices fall for any good or service when supply is more than demand. So we really want to try to understand what are all the demand side data factors to ascertain how strong demand is. And then let's compare that to all the supply side um, data factors to ascertain how weak or strong supply is. And we can then project this using thresholds, per factor, trends, per factor, and coefficients based on that statistical technique I was mentioning before, per factor. So I made some notes here, like I'll I'll just go through them. So one supply side um, factor that we look at is stock on market percentage. So stock on market percentages in that suburb, um, of all the properties that exist, how many are for sale? Okay. Demand can be huge, but if 10% of all properties in a suburb are for sale, there's a pretty good chance that prices aren't going to rise because supply is so strong. Okay. And another uh, factor is days on market. Now this is on the demand side. So this is how many days does it take for a property to sell? Now, it's like a very obvious thing, I and mean, most people would know this anecdotally, but if you can quantify this, then you can say, okay, well, supply is low, but demand seems to be low as well because it's taking 90 days or three months to sell a property. But if supply is low and demand is low, demand is high, like days on market is like 20 days, like less than a month to sell a property, then you know that there must be, there's something, further to investigate and then we look at things like previous rental growth have has that rental demand been steadily increasing over the last years we look at building approvals so right now demand might be bigger than supply but in the future is supply going to catch up therefore um eroding that sort of price growth potential and we look at that building approvals like has the council approved a lot of new buildings or a lot of new um dwellings residential dwellings in that suburb and if they have then there's certain thresholds we work to then that means that oh it might be a good investment now but two or three years from now prices might stabilize or they might go backwards Um, we look at average vendor discounting which is a demand side factor so average vendor discounting means on average, what percentage do sellers need to discount their homes in order to sell them? So if they list it at 500K, did they end up selling it for 450, in which case there's a $50,000 discount? Okay, like 10%, or was there a negative discount? They actually ended up selling it more than what they listed it at. Okay, so that's another demand side metric. There's things like, job advertisements so in that local government area sure right now it might be a booming economy but how is how are job advertisements looking as a trend going forward because then we can ascertain is the unemployment rate going to rise it's a leading indicator basically of unemployment or employment i should say so like this if you go through 30 to 35 data factors and you don't have to do this like one on one, like one by one per suburb, that would be a massive headache. Um if you you know accountants can run Excel spreadsheets, right? Um, you just get like a big data dump and look at all fifteen thousand suburbs at once. It's almost like running a pivot or like a a power pivot if anyone knows what that is. like I think everyone would know. It's a kind of very simple thing if you're kind of a little bit savvy and in, in in Excel, anyone can do a pivot table. And then you can very quickly see, okay, based on my thresholds, based on my coefficients that I want to target, which are determined by the multivariate regression analysis that I've already done, which suburbs are actually having an imbalance between demand and supply now and which suburbs are likely to continue that imbalance. And it might be that there's five in Perth, there's three in Sydney, there's, I don't know, 10 in Brisbane. I'm just making this up. And then you can take that short list of 20 30 suburbs however many you want and then say okay i only want to invest in areas that aren't going to cost me any money to hold okay from a cash flow perspective and so i want to draw a line in the sand at let's say six percent yield or six and a half percent yield or when interest rates that were a bit lower five percent yield and so you can say all right of those 20 30 suburbs there are these five that i really want to target because they're going to grow in value and the property is going to pay for itself okay and if the property pays for itself much like the strategy i deployed when i was a uh, back in when i was a banker then i can actually afford to buy more properties i can actually afford to buy multiple properties it's not like each one is costing me an arm and a leg to hold every year so that that's really the factors that that we look at or uh, an example of the factors that we look at and it's just a it's just a systematic process. But what I found is like almost no one was thinking about property this way. Most people were like, oh, I live in Sydney or I live in Melbourne. I should just buy as close to the CBD as possible. Oh damn, I can only afford an apartment. I'll just buy an apartment in Docklands. or I'll just buy an apartment in St. Leonard's or Parramatta. And then 10 years later, that thing is valued the same as what they bought. And they're like, oh, property investing doesn't really work
1: <laughs> true true totally a great reason and also uh when you mentioned about supply and demand um we found this quite interesting trend um like before COVID, i think back 2020 when that time the COVID just started people got really panicked and not not sure what's going on here and then i I think there was. Um, I think he said in the, one of the major banks, oh, that all property market the value will be dropped like twenty or t- like thirty mm-hmm. percent. But surprisingly, during the COVID these two or three years, the property mar- market is actually really really good. And the well obviously because one of the like important points because the interest rate is extremely low. Um I'm pretty sure this year will be really tough for for some investors when they fixed rate got expired. It's like really painful because the interest rates double up or two or three times double. So what's the trend you can tell at at the currently property market?
0: Sure. Yeah, so It's a fantastic. Such a fantastic question. And it's kind of like this question that I always get like, oh, hey, PK, is this a good time to buy property? Yes, that's not? right. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> you know? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And like, obviously the answer is like the best time to buy property was yesterday, but apart from being like cheeky, um, you know, the, the, the truth is that there isn't one property market. Like I said before, there's 15,000 suburbs in Australia at any one time, whether it's 2000, 2005, 2010, 2015, 2020 during COVID 2023, right here. There are some suburbs that are falling in value. There are some suburbs that are just going sideways. And then there are other suburbs that are that are going up in value. And so like last year is a really prime example of that where Sydney and Melbourne fell by just, I'm just rounding like roughly 10% last year, both property markets on, on aggregate um, fell by about 10%. But then you had parts of Perth, like um, areas like Rockingham City Council in Perth, That in Swan City, City Council, Jundalep City Council in Perth, that went up 10 to 20 percent. You had places like in uh Bundaberg in Queensland, regional Queensland, um, went up like 20-25 percent. Places like Mount Gambia and regional South Australia go up 20. percent. Adelaide continued to go up. So, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that this question although well-meaning like what's the property market doing is it a good time to buy like the more legible question is where should i be buying if i want to be buying right if i have the financial capacity and risk appetite of course um, to be buying real estate the question is always where to buy not should I buy or is it the right time to buy And and just going around like at least capital cities right now you can see that Sydney is growing like really really fast it's actually growing at an annualized 12 percent um growth rate which is perplexing right because it's like hang on a second all these people have just come off their fixed uh, mortgages that maybe they got it at 1.9 percent 2.5 percent now they're paying six maybe seven percent variable rate um you know the inflation is so high cost of living is is up unemployment might be ticking up a little bit soon as well like all this points towards a property kind of downturn but so why is sydney increasing and it's increasing because listings are low like people the last thing people want to do is sell their property like they'll do anything and everything but sell their property, okay? They'll cut down on their subscriptions, stop eating out, et cetera, et cetera. And when they, then listings go down, like I was sharing before around stock on market and demand stays stable, even if demand doesn't go up, but supply just comes down, then prices go up, okay? And so Sydney's going up, Perth is, in fact, right now, as we speak in August, 2023, every single capital city except Darwin, I think is actually increasing in value. And and who saw this coming? You know, when you think the, the mortgage cliff you know interest rates going up so much cost of living going up how on earth are property prices increasing there's so much more to property um, than just interest rates right there's population growth immigration there's the supply story there's the fact that there's record low buildings right now because construction prices have gone through the roof there's so much stimulus money that's still on the sidelines there's so much I could go on and on, right? So I think it's really important for anyone who wants to invest in property to just become at least a little bit educated um, to to see, okay, where should I invest? Um, hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs>
1: yes but first thing maybe you can enroll like pk's courses Guys, <laughs> <Get laughs> honestly, up, like, ideas like, honestly course.
0: i don't <laughs> mind i honestly yeah. don't mind i really want people just to be educated i think the best yeah. education to start with is actually free education and yeah and that's kind of the reason i have my facebook group as you know that's um, right Yuki, and Pretty there's like yeah, there's almost forty thousand people in there that's my, right my youtube yeah. channel because i think like you shouldn't have to pay money just for basic education. And then once you've got basic education, financial literacy, property market education, based on data, like not my opinion, right? Just based on data. Yeah. Then you can ascertain, oh hey, is this right for me? Like I don't I don't know what the statistics are, but there's uh correct me if I'm wrong, Yuki, but like the the statistics are like I think it's like 70% of people who start A particular university degree don't finish that university degree they they end up changing right they they go from commerce to arts or something else and same with careers if you start as an accountant it i don't know i don't want to pick on accountant specifically but if you start as a profession i think the chances are more than 80 percent of people don't finish their career in that same profession in fact after five or ten years they pivot And so it's because we don't actually learn what accounting is all about before we become an accountant. We don't learn what a university degree is all about until we actually are in the first year. So I believe in like just not having to learn the hard way. So I think if people can get free education, then they can be like, okay, property investing, look, I know I can leave my nine to five, but for me, like, it's just too much of a risk. I can't sleep at night, like, you know, calmly knowing that I have $2 million of debt um, across different properties. Or that might... Be exactly what you want you might understand the concept of good debt and you might be like actually using the bank's money is my ticket out of the nine to five and i know that i'll have to make some sacrifices for 10 years but after 10 years uh, you know i'll have this passive income and i don't have to worry about working so yeah different horse different courses for different horses right
1: definitely i, I agree um especially i actually changed my career so i'm i love accounting you know to being an accountant you know helping people doing all this stuff thing, but my passion is more helping people to understand how you're working with the bank to getting a loan done, to build up your portfolio. So that's the whole, I can feel myself, I have passion on it. So I also go back to your point about the cash flow. Totally great because before, I, you know, I always thinking, oh, the tax benefit, how I can make, you know, pay less tax. But from when I actually start working in the banking industry, that's actually changing all my old content, you know, you have to, making the profit before you can go to the bank to getting more loan. Yes, You know, let the bank to trust you to you have the capability and the ability to repay the money they borrow to you. So that's really, really important. I think this will be conflict between as an accountant or working in yeah. the bank. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, we actually got a couple of questions in the chat. So let we just, do you mind we just jump into Yeah, the let's version? go for it. Yeah. Okay. Another question for you is uh, how do we get the, this raw data?
0: Sure. So the raw data itself, um, it actually, actually costs a lot of money. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to go to um, like a research company or research house like PriceFinder, or core logic RP data, and you have to ask them for basically like last 10, 20, 30 years of raw property data. And they'll give you like a CSV dump, you know, and then you obviously need to know what each column is defined as, and you need to figure out uh, you have to cleanse it for all of the uh, peculiarities and and unreliability of data, et cetera. So that's where you get it. It does cost a bit of money, like ten or $20,000. But the great thing in 2023, um, which I didn't have when I started, is there's a lot of websites out there that actually give you really strong raw data that's somewhat processed um, for a much more affordable price. So for example, even like the ABS, like Australian Bureau of Statistics, they give fantastic data that you can then interpret yourself, like uh, websites like uh, DSR data, um, they give you like fantastic three-year trends or, or different data points, like some of the ones that I mentioned before. Unfortunately, there's not like one magic website that just gives you all these 30, 35 factors. So what I teach is actually where to go to get what data and then how to bring it together and interpret it. Because like data is powerful, no doubt. Data is really, really powerful. But if someone just gives you an Excel file with like 20 tabs and each tab has like 100,000 rows, then it's like power is in my hands. but I don't know what to do with it. Like, what what does this mean? So I think the the true value add is in the interpretation of that. And I think a lot of companies out there and a lot of different content out there just tells you what to do. But who's to say they have misinterpreted the data or their their coefficients are wrong or the thresholds that they're looking at are incorrect Um, for example like a very big myth out there is that population growth actually precedes or is a precursor to capital growth and that's actually incorrect i mean Intuitively, it sounds logical, right? Like if more people come into a, a suburb, then like surely like the prices would grow because demand would grow. But if you think about it, let's say um, for the anyone in, in let's say Sydney, right? If you think of a well-established suburb, um, let's say Epping, okay, Epping or Hornsby or whatever is a well-established suburb. How can more people come into that suburb? Because there is no spare land, like they're all just residential houses everywhere, so in Epping has gone up a lot in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but population hasn't increased. So there must be something else that's causing capital growth because there's the same amount of people that live in Epping today that there were 20 years ago, right? And in fact, those suburbs with the most population growth actually have the biggest supply growth as well. So I'll use an example like in Brisbane, like in uh, in Caboolture or Moray Field, huge increase in population but that population was facilitated by like thousands of new houses or hundreds of new houses and so supply went up more houses demand went up more population and they cancelled each other out so a lot of these kind of uh, most people with all due respect and and humility most people don't actually understand true property economics and that's why i'm saying that data is really important but the interpretation of it is actually like really the key to to getting somewhere if you know what i mean
1: thank you and we have a uh, teresa here saying uh how much time do you need to invest in study analysis those data especially you have like a full-time job you know like you're exhausting after work and then yeah, sitting yeah. in front of the computer <laughs> looking at those It's like
0: <laughs> yeah no I think uh, it's like a fair enough question and I think the first thing that I'll say is like analyzing property markets and buying a property is not like watching Netflix uh, it's not like a passive activity it's not like you know, like you can just relax and do it, so to speak, Um, you don't actually need that much time. So what I say to people is um, if you're actually educated or you're being educated and you want to buy a property in like a systematic education um, sort of structured way, then three to five hours a week over one or two weeks, one or two months, sorry. So that's four to eight weeks, Um, three to five hours a week over one or two months, you can buy a property. That includes the education and the implementation that includes not only the the data analysis but also strategy development that includes then finding properties, building your team of property manage- managers, building in pest um, conveyances, accountants, etc. That includes getting those properties inspected, getting them valued, negotiating, settling on those properties, getting like the whole you know, kind of life cycle of like not knowing anything to getting at your first tenant in your first property. That's three to five hours a week over um, over one or two months. And like, I think that's kind of a welcome, maybe a refreshing kind of thing for people to hear because they automatically think this is like a full-time job or at least a part-time job, right? But it, it really isn't um, if if you're doing things in a structured and systematic way.
1: Thank you. I thought you want to talk about like three or five hours each day. I was like, no, no, (laughs) no, I'd be out of a job
0: if that (laughs) was, if that was okay. I mean, I must say these are like focused, you know, this is not like, um, you know, two kids in each hand and like, you know, distracted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And also I agree you have to find, uh, sometimes, um, you have to build up your own team. Like you have accountants really you know responsible conveyancer or solicitor so it will be make your life much easier so yeah
0: yeah and and like i provide the team to my clients but i'm i'm always like i say i'm a fan of being educated so just because i've given you an accountant or a conveyancer or this person or that person it doesn't mean that you should trust me blindly or that you should trust them blindly you should actually know how to manage them like you're a captain you know if you're a captain of like a soccer team you actually know the strategy you know the individual strengths and weaknesses of each of your team members better than they know it themselves and that accordingly you can manage them and i think that's really important given that you're spending a million dollars half a million dollars and getting all this debt
1: yeah true (laughs) okay we have a here, Eric asked a question. So what's a good strategy to buy at lower the valuation amount? Oh, that's a good question. And how to search property like this?
0: Oh, that's a fantastic question, Eric. Thank you for asking it. So there's like, there's many, many ways. Um, I think one, oh, oh, let's go through a couple of ways of, of many, excuse me. One way is to understand the value add potential of that property better than the seller or agent so for example um i just posted this on the facebook um, group the other day one of our members he understood by calling council because he was educated um that this particular property was on i'm just making this up because i can't remember like let's say a thousand square meter block he understood that it could be subdivided into three lots um because he had Got a hunch because he was educated and he confirmed that by calling the town planner at the council and they confirmed it whereas the seller and the the agent the selling agent they thought you could only subdivide it into two lots now i know this is a bit of a technical term in terms of subdivision but just to make the point he the more you can subdivide it the more houses or townhouses you can build on it therefore the higher end resale value right and so he kind of kept those cards close to his chest and he paid whatever the, the seller wanted. So the seller was completely happy. It was like, oh, great. I got what I wanted. But actually the property was worth way more because it had this far more higher and best use that the agent and seller didn't know about. So uh, one way is actually just to know that the zoning and the rules and and the property way better than even those that are selling it. And and with no disrespect and with all um, love and and kindness, you know, the property market is a very inefficient market. It's not like the stock market, you know, it's very hard to get a good deal in the stock market because everyone who's selling is an investor, basically, and everyone who's buying is an investor. But in the real estate market, 70% of people who are selling are actually owner-occupiers. They're not investors, which means that they mostly speaking, don't really know true value of the property. Like it's an emotional decision for them whether to buy it or sell it. And if you're the investor and you have that much more education and that much more know-how, you can actually ascertain like so much more about the property than the, than the seller. And agents, they're not like CPAs. They don't have to do like a two or three year course and like 120 hours every one or two years to maintain the qualifications. To become a real estate agent and with with all due respect um it literally takes like less than a couple of months right it's not that much of a rigorous process as you might think so a lot of these people there's some fantastic agents out there as well don't get me wrong but um in my own experience like the vast majority of them once again they're not property investors they don't know as much as you may give them credit for and so if you can really become educated then you can adv- i don't want to use the word exploit but you can make the most of this inefficient marketplace and the second way to get under market value properties is to get them off market so what that means is even before they're listed on realestate.com or domain this is so simple anyone can do this you just call a local real estate agent so this is website called ratemyagent.com.au and it shows for every suburb across australia like the top rated real estate agents so let's say you want to buy, like I live in Sorrento on the Gold Coast. Let's say you want to buy in Sorrento. You can look up that suburb Sorrento and you can find the top three agents. And then on a weekly basis, like let's say on a Monday morning for five minutes, you can call each of those agents. You can be like, hello, Mr. or, or Miss Agent. Um, my name's PK. You know, I, I have my finance ready. I've got my pre approval. I'm a committed buyer. And I'm, Um, this is kind of like my criteria. I'm like really looking forward to buying a house in in Sorrento. Um, If there's anything that kind of comes up in this kind of price range with these characteristics, let me know because I can make your life easy. You know, you don't want to run multiple campaigns, multiple inspections, have so many time wasters and tire kickers. I'm ready and professional. I'm ready to go. I can take this off you. And you might need to do that for one or two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden that real estate agent's like, oh, I remember PK, he keeps calling me, like, you know, he asks me how my weekend was. He seems like a nice guy. Um, actually, I do have this property coming for sale and I do know that my client, the seller, they just want a quick sale because they're a little bit private or maybe it's a deceased estate or maybe, you know, they're, they've just bought a new house and they really need to sell real quick. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give PK a call because um, I think I can get this deal done real quick and not have to spend money on marketing on realestate.com, et cetera. Um, and that way, you've just built this amazing relationship, got this property with no competition, and when there's no competition, that means you can negotiate on it so much better and get that thing under market value. So there's so many ways, but I'm really passionate about that, as you can see. But it's 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 you don't have to pay the market value for a, for a property. Oh
1: my god! This is my second important point to to take <laughs> home. Um, yes, so. Um, we have also Lily here say, do you think apartments are still worth to invest
0: in? Okay. Um, so uh, once again, like it's a great question, Li- uh, Lily, and like I was saying before, Um, There are apartments in Sydney, there are apartments in Melbourne, are apartments in Brisbane, there's like all sorts of different types of apartments all over Australia. So it's hard for me to be like generic in in the answer, but I'll try to be generic as much as possible, using this concept of um, land to asset ratio. Now, the old adage in real estate is that land appreciates because, you know, they don't make more land, it is what it is. Um, Land appreciates and buildings they depreciate, as every accountant knows, you know, the prime cost method or diminishing cost method, you know, buildings or assets, they, they depreciate. So what really drives capital growth over the long term is a high land to asset ratio. You want the land component of the real estate asset that you buy. To be more than the building component or the dwelling or the bricks and mortar, like at least sixty percent, I would say. And so, apartments—you don't really have that land component. And like I remember, there are like these stories of like back in year two thousand when they had the Sydney Olympic Games and like World Square and like the center of Sydney. They built that, well they built that building, World Square, and they were selling those apartments, and there was like shiny brochures and it was amazing like in the city center. Yeah. How could you go I wrong? Yeah, Yo, there you go. Um and they were selling them for like half a million dollars. And all these people, especially foreign investors, they like, they climbed in, they were like, what a bargains in the middle of Sydney. And like fast forward 10, 20 years and those things are like basically still worth like 500,000 or 600,000, 700,000. the reason is that in that same time in Sydney, there's like, I'm exaggerating, there's like a million more apartments that have been built, right? At least in the city center, there's literally thousands, if not tens of thousands. So there's no scarcity of supply in apartments because you can build up, 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 up to to the clouds as long as the zoning allows. For anyone who's been to Hong Kong or New York or et cetera, you know like how high you can build. So we want to buy something that's scarce and that will become more and more scarce. And that's the value of land. So in general, my answer to this question is always avoid buying apartments. Um, And a lot of people err towards apartments because they're like, oh man, I can't afford houses because it's too expensive. And this is where that concept that I was talking about before comes in being an interstate investor. Like sure, you know, it's hard to be an investor in Sydney when everything's like a million dollars plus. But hey, Brisbane's got opportunities under 600K. Perth has got opportunities under 600K. Adelaide's got opportunities under 500K. Regional, like a place like Toowoomba, not that I'm kind of promoting any particular place. I don't really mind where you buy. But Toowoomba is like as diversified an an economy as Brisbane, but you can buy something for 400K. And so when people, I think when people realize this, they have that sort of aha moment. and like, why should I buy something so expensive that's going to cost me so much money to hold in Sydney, or why should I buy like a really underperforming asset like an apartment in Sydney? Why not buy like a scarce landed house in Tumba or in Brisbane or somewhere like that? So sorry, that was a long-winded way of answering your question, but i, I generally speaking avoid apartments,
1: so I hope really about your answer start looking for house from tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So you mentioned about like Queensland. So the next question from Rebecca Day, do you think Queensland's do worse to invest right now?
0: Yeah, I, I do. And once again, there's there's markets, so then markets. So some areas to potentially avoid in Queensland are like almost like where there's not diversified economies. Like um, you could say Emerald is a mining town. Like there's no doubt about it coal prices come down, which they are, then emerald property prices come down because all the workers, they flee from emerald, they go back to Brisbane or wherever they they normally work. Um, but there are other much more diversified regional areas in Queensland, like Townsville, um, like Bundaberg, like uh, Toowoomba that I just mentioned before, um, that, that have... You know you might not have heard of them because we may be very sydney centric or melbourne centric but if you take the time to educate yourself like townsville was definitely a mining town 10 years ago in fact the unemployment rate was almost 10 percent back then But in the last 10 years, it's diversified so much that actually in the top two or three industries now in Townsville is not mining. It's like healthcare and education. Same in Bundaberg that healthcare, there's more per capita infrastructure spend in Bundaberg than there is in Sydney. And like that is phenomenal when you think about it, right? Because you always think all the infrastructure goes in Sydney, but on a relative basis and relativity is really the most important thing in property markets. Like, you you drop a stone into a lake, and it doesn't really make a big difference. You drop the same stone into a bathtub, and it makes a much more ripple effect. And so, you know, you might have amazing infrastructure going in in Sydney, but if you have even less infrastructure going on in a place like Bundaberg, but because Bundaberg's small, it has a bigger impact relatively on property prices, on per capita wealth, then that is what drives real estate markets. And so that's another area that I think is really worthwhile investing in. And of course, Brisbane as well. Brisbane has had a huge run up, more than 50% growth in the last couple of years, but it's got a, a long way to go still. And there's really a lot of those areas that um had a lot of developable land supply, a lot of new houses coming in, like um like parts of Logan City Council, up um near Morton Bay City Council. All those houses are built now. And with construction prices the way they are. And it's like impossible to find a builder almost anywhere. And all these building companies are going bust, as you guys know. Um, New developments are really scarce and demand continues to go up. So prices continue to go up. So, yeah, I think there's lots of places in Queensland. In fact, Queensland and and Perth are are probably, um, not according to my opinion, but according to the data, some of the best areas to invest in across Australia right now. Cool.
1: So the next question actually from Carol. Caroline, do you mind just uh unmute yourself? Give us like a rough um I'm really apologize because I, I did I didn't get the question here.
2: I sure um Thank yeah, you. so my question is like between the two options, which one would PK recommend? Um the first one is the suburb currently experiencing demand surpassing uh, supply, um, but also with potential for continued undersupply in the future. And the second option is a suburb where currently <coughs> supply exceeds demand, but there is a potential for um, future demand outweighing supply. Because in the case of undersupply, that means the price for to purchase the property is likely to be overpriced if that makes sense
0: i understand i I think i understand your question so basically what you're saying is is it better to buy in like a a hot market now where demand exceeds supply and is likely to continue to do so or is it better to buy in quote unquote more undervalued area where it's not so hot um but may become hot in the future is that right
2: yes exactly
0: okay um, so, like, obviously, the panacea or what everyone wants is to buy in, like, this perfect location where, like, no one else knows about it. And if I just buy today, then all of a sudden, like, you know, in a month's time or six months' time or a year's time, you know, everyone will jump in. It's like, um, yeah, not not to be, like, facetious or anything, but I remember, like, you know, back at work times, people would want to know that stock to invest in and be like, okay, what's, like, that stock? That, that that I should buy, that share that I should buy, and then everyone's gonna jump in and I'm gonna make so much money. But I think the reality is that um, if you know about that stock, like let's say it's BHP or whatever, then there's probably a, so many other people that already know about that stock, unless you have insider information, which is legal. Um, And therefore the, the the market is already priced in, whatever the good thing is about that stock. Do you know what I mean? So real estate markets sort of work in, in a similar way. Um, uh let's use sydney as an example so last year like let's say we're having this conversation last year um august 2022 and you're saying okay pk sydney has more supply than demand right now therefore prices are going down generally speaking is it better to buy in sydney right now or is it better to buy in let's say perth where demand is more than supply and it's likely to remain more than supply So my answer back then, with benefit of hindsight, of course, but my answer back then and even now is it's always better to buy in Perth. And the reason is that if we can know that prices are going to increase now and they're going to increase in the future, then even though we might not be able to get like a terrific deal, like an absolute terrific deal, $100,000 under market value or whatever the case may be we know that that thing is gonna go up in value, okay? So we're paying fair market value. Assume we don't have that conversation around off-market deals and building relationships with agents, which can happen in hot markets too. Assume you don't know all that, then you're just paying fair market value and you're just getting that amazing um, upside over the next one, two, three, four, five years, okay? In Sydney last year, it's like trying to catch a falling knife, sure some vendors might be desperate, you might be able to bag a a bargain, let's say you bought something $100,000 under its true valuation, but it's like catching a falling knife. How do you know that even though you bought 100 grand under under true valuation, that that property is just not going to continue falling, you know, another 100 grand, and therefore your, your bargain has been evaporated. And then that the price growth may or may not occur. So I kind of, um, liken property markets to like the Titanic sometimes, where or like large ships. Not in the sense that they sh- they like sink and go down and you lose all your money, but in the sense that they're very hard to to maneuver. They're very hard to change the trajectory of. Okay, so like when the guy or gal saw the iceberg in front of the titanic was probably i don't know like 100 meters away 200 meters away but they still ran into the titanic it was very hard for them to change course and property markets are the same you know when prices are rising they tend to rise for like you know multiple years the average up cycle goes for two to four years in in real estate markets um and so that that's going to continue happening and, and same on the downside as well unlike stock markets where you know you might buy a bargain today and then tomorrow that thing goes up 10 and the next day it comes down so i like to buy safe and secure assets where i know they're going to increase now and in the future and and less try to gamble or speculate that it may or may not go up in the future but i'm getting a great bargain now um hopefully that makes sense of course the caveat to that is like if you're just getting like this unmissable amazing deal where you're getting like 30 percent off for whatever reason it might be like that would be hard to give up but yeah generally speaking is what i'm saying
2: yeah so uh my understanding is like the historical data if the historical data shows the increasing trend in the house the property price in the suburb which also the most the the most treat greater potential for future growth is
0: um can i understand it that way it's more like what it's doing it's less about um like historical price movement more about current price movement but even more importantly current like data factors like those demand factors that i talked about the current supply factors and the reason i say that is because actually once again completely counterintuitively, past performance in real estate markets is you know how in in like disclaimers they say past performance is not a indicator of future performance Um, that's actually really true in real estate markets where those markets that have performed really well in the last 10 years tend to underperform in the next 10 years um and that's just because of regression to the mean over the long term all property markets actually perform exactly the same so uh, I digress a bit, but over a 30-year period, even a place like Launceston, like a small little place in in Tasmania, has performed just as well as Sydney. So it's all about timing the right markets. And to give you an example, between 2004 to about 2013, Sydney was like dead flat, didn't do anything. And then the next 10 years, as we all know, 2014 or 13 to about you know now. Sydney has like gone up more than double, if not almost triple. And so the likelihood is that the next 10 years will underperform. So we have to try to find, okay, which property markets around Australia were really bad in the last 10 years and have really good data right now to suggest the next 10 years will be really solid. That That's kind of more of a uh, zooming out way to, to approach it. But to answer your question more, more clinically, it's just about looking at current price movement and current data, as opposed to the, like the last two years or whatever.
2: Okay, thanks, Pika.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you. So I think the next question is more about yourself. So um, we got a question here. So, might know your view of how to arrange your investment portfolio. Like for example, buying a house and rent tail or you're, building, you're buying a land and uh, building the, your house yourself so which one you think is a quicker to make positive yeah
0: sure um, sure sure uh, this is a really good question by the way um so i've done both so i started off excuse me um just with the standard buying established property and you know it's easy it's already there um from day one at settlement you can rent it out very passive strategy so if you have like a really intense job or you just don't you're not really that passionate about real estate. That's like your your strategy, right? Just buy a house, established house, rent it out. Um, if you have a little bit more time or a little bit more passion, or you should say drive, um, then we talk about development. So development is where you find a piece of land um, and you build on that yourself. Um, Now, of course, that is different to you buying a house and land package, a house and land package, or what we call turnkey packages, you guys might have heard of, is like where there's like some fancy company that is saying, oh, here's this land, we'll do everything, we'll build it for you, we'll do everything, and, and you have to buy it. That is a really terrible idea, because they tend to put in their own margin or their own profit as part of the deal, so you're most cases overpaying. Um, for the property, and they tend to be in like far out locations, like fringe areas of um, the city, where most of the time the demand supply metrics aren't aren't um, aren't well balanced. Um, to be honest, but the the really quick fire way to financial freedom, for want of a better way to explain it, is to buy land yourself in like infill areas, so not like really far out in the middle of nowhere, but like in established areas. So. For example, um, in I know when we bought, when, like our first place was in a place called Banyo um, in in Brisbane, and it was 10k's from the CBD, and there was like this pocket of land that was formerly owned by um, the army, and that kind of released it and to like a just private investors, and you could buy a piece of land, and then you'd have to source your own builder to like build on it, but all around it was already established suburbs. Like there wasn't like just acres of farmland or whatever. And so if you can find something like that and then engage your own builder, and of course you need the skills to do that and and build on there, then what generally happens is that the end value of the house is more than the sum of the parts. So the land plus the building cost or the other transaction costs end up being less than the final resale ability uh, or resale value of that that property so that's a really good way to to make money and of course if you take it to the next level then you're actually you know let's say buying an established property um, and you're knocking that property off um, and you're subdividing that land and building multiple townhouses like we did a deal in uh, cooper in brisbane um, which is a fairly affluent area at the time i would say it was like a corner block and there was this old queensland house at the front and there was a granny flat at the back And so we bought that property, renovated the Queenslander at the front, um, lifted that granny flat up, sold it for like $50,000, subdivided the back and built two townhouses at the back. And the profit in that deal was like, I mean, not that it's easy and, and it's just like anyone can do it, but the profit on that was about 300K. I mean, it required a lot of hard work, don't get me wrong. So there's like this spectrum of like completely passive, low risk, low time commitment by established properties um and like just work your way slowly out of your nine to five and let's be honest like that's not an overnight thing it took me just over 10 years i think realistically for most people um like i was on uh, very grateful to say high incomes and my wife was a child accountant so she was making good coin as well um just on average incomes, that will take you more than 10 years, like 10 to 20 years, let's say. Um, but if you want to fast track that, then there's the, your more active strategy, requires more risk, requires more time, requires more skills of development. Like I mentioned, if you do a few of those developments, like the Cooparoo one, then you might be able to exit your nine to five in less than 10 years. So um, that that's the kind of way to think about it.
1: Perfect. Um, the next question, we got two more. Um, so next question from Carlo saying, how about Tasmania? I think PK was mentioned person. Um Yeah. He said, he's like, before you didn't mention any Tasmania. Oh, okay.
0: okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. No offense to any Tasmanians. I always just forget to mention Tasmania. But honestly yeah. speaking, it's been such an amazing, amazing, amazing market. Um, I actually have um, a a property, um, actually two properties in, in Tasmania, one in Bernie um, and another just in Kingston, just a little bit out from Hobart. And... Um, Just like any other location, I mean, we shouldn't, and the true, um, if we're being truly objective and emotionless, then we should just buy a a property based on the merit of the data in the suburb. And that's exactly what places like Bernie and and Hobart were showing back in 2014, 15, 16, 17. Um, They were showing a lot of strength in the data, and I bought there a lot Mm. of other people that I helped. Um, bought there and you know you'd think like oh Tasmania is that even part of Australia like you know such a small place though so cold like why buy there but once again like Bernie believe it or not Bernie um, where I bought it's like a, a logging town like a lot of forestry happens there's a port there the population of Bernie's actually reduced in the last uh, seven eight nine years um, but my property has gone that was a real cheap property it went from Two thirty thousand. i think it's like half a million just over half a million now okay so like more than um actually it's probably about 600k now or something so like more than double in value in in way less than 10 years and the rents have have gone up so much as well and so it's like why is that increase is because um the incomes of that area have gone up a lot as alongside so many other data points so um if you kind of just followed like these old school like kind of um uh, doctrines of like follow the population growth and you miss out on areas like that and and so yeah hobart is actually been a huge hunting ground for us as well not so much in the last couple of years now the affordability is really not there for locals you never want to buy in a location where the locals can't afford it every time a property market or location or suburb is growing in value because of investors that is a sign of a potential bubble you know it could pop but every time a location or suburb is growing because of owner occupiers the locals buying to live or upgrading or f- or their first you know first home purchase that is a sign of a boom a sustainable boom and that's exactly what we've experienced um in this last boom like in 2011 uh 20 22 Everyone's like, "Oh, when's this bubble gonna burst?" It wasn't a bubble because investors were almost mostly absent in the last few years. Believe it or not.
1: True. So, when you mentioned about emotion bias, I think the next question, Kenny, is what are the key differences when uh, or t- uh, the key difference concern between investment property and residential
2: properties?
0: Could you clarify this question for me? Because uh, obviously, you can invest in residential property.
2: Um, I'm just thinking, like, is there any different way thinking about you know, buying a, a, a property i going to live
1: in, in the future, maybe in the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years, or I'll just buy a
2: pure investment property, maybe in other states, or I don't even, you know, like take, take a look, or I can just, you know, hand to the agent completely. I mean, is there
1: any, you know, when you consider those questions, is there any key concern or criteria you
2: want to recommend us?
0: Okay. Um, so if I understand your question, um, so when like there's sort of two schools of thought or two trains of thought the first train of thought is like let's say i want to buy to live which i think is what you're where you're suggesting um you can be like completely emotion uh, it can be an emotional decision which is completely fine because you want to live there right like you even if it's not the best suburb in terms of growth it's like that's where your friends live or colleagues live or community lives it's close to You know where you want to be lifestyle-wise the property itself you might want a particular type of property that doesn't meet any investment guidelines but you just love that type of property and that's completely fine so that's one school of thought um the other school of thought is obviously what we've been talking about which is like forget about living it forget about emotions just like what actually makes sense from a pure quantitative data-driven return on investment perspective and i think what i try to help people um think about at least and explore is even if you're buying to live you know the statistics show that i think every 6 years or every 5 years people move houses and then generally when they move houses a lot of people become accidental property investors and so far as they don't sell the first house they keep it as an a property like an investment property and then they upgrade or or, or buy another house so, so they've got two houses So what I really encourage people to think about is, can you treat your first home purchase to live in with an investment mindset as well? Okay, as well. So there's like a circle here of everything that makes sense from an investment perspective in terms of suburb location, in terms of the type of property. And then there's a circle here that is like what you just fall in love with the suburb or the property or just like what your family loves or just where you want to live right so try to see if there's a intersect between those circles if there's a suburb that actually makes sense from a data perspective and you like to live in if there's a property type that you that you love but actually makes sense from a property investing perspective as well for example like brand new properties generally make inferior or subpar investments over the long term because of land to asset ratio what i shared before Um, established properties generally speaking grow more than brand new properties but some people love to live in a brand new property right um, and same with us. Like we lo- we would love to live in a brand new property. So what we did is we bought this property that I'm speaking from right now, and we renovated it. Okay, so it basically looks like a brand new property. It was a bit of a headache, but <laughs> look, it like, looks like a brand new property. But we mostly paid for the land, not the building. So that's just one kind of small example. But try to find the confluence of those two circles, and so that you enjoy where you live, but you can also make it an investment property in the future. Okay, Because buying and selling costs in, in real estate in Australia, really high agent fees, lawyer fees, et cetera, et cetera. You want to try and not sell anything that you you bought. So if you buy well, even if it's for the purpose to live in, um, then then that's that's a kind of good investment mentality. And and this wasn't, I don't know if I'm answering your question and feel free to to say that I'm not, but the other way to think about it as well is rent vesting. I don't know if that's a term that a lot of people, here have know about or have heard about but rent vesting means where you're like okay well i can't afford where i really want to live in sydney or melbourne or whatever i'll rent in the lifestyle location that i want to because i can afford the rent right i can't afford that two million three million property but i can afford rent in manly or i can afford rent close to the city or whatever and i'll use my savings to buy investment property after investment property after investment property in cheaper areas, like you mentioned before, like Molly, like interstate. Okay. And what a lot of my clients do, and it's not like some secret strategy. A lot of people just have been doing this forever in Australia is that these other locations, while you're renting in Sydney or Melbourne, you've invested in Mel- uh Brisbane, regional Queensland, Perth, Adelaide, whatever these things, these assets are growing in value. And then in the future, you can either take equity out or you can sell a couple of them. And then all of a sudden, you've got this deposit for your dream home in Sydney or your dream home in Melbourne in the location that you otherwise couldn't afford. And you would never be able to afford if you just relied on saving from your job or from your business. So it's using, I guess, a bit of dexterity, a bit of leverage, using the bank's money to hold multiple assets. And over a course of, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, being able to get into a position where you can buy your dream home. So that's just, I don't know if this was your question. So apologies if it wasn't, but that's just another way to think about it.
1: Thank you. I think we we will stop. We're taking the last question and then considering time, I was like, oh, already one half hour. <laughs> um so got question here is uh, about Melbourne market. So is it already too unaffordable? Is there any suburb you would recommend?
0: So Uh, the easy answer is I actually just did like a whole YouTube video on Melbourne, like a couple of weeks ago. It's like, you should check it out. Um, but I'm just trying to remember the main points from that video. Now, look, honestly speaking, um, Melbourne hasn't really performed as much as Sydney or Brisbane in the last few years because the lockdown was much more severe, um, in, in Melbourne and the economy in terms of unemployment and small business health is much more shakier than other parts of australia and that's why the property market hadn't performed so well so you can think about that as an opportunity it hasn't done so well so there's more opportunity for it to do well in the future and that's definitely true i I definitely don't want to take that away from melbourne however once again much like sydney the yields in melbourne are so low by and large that any property, basically, unless you're developing, any property is going to cost you money to hold. So if I just think about it objectively, without any bias, like I don't mind if you buy in Melbourne or not, I'm just thinking, look, if I can get the same or better growth in another location around Australia than I can in Melbourne, but at the same time, that property in the other location is not going to cost me money to hold on a yearly basis. In fact, it might give me some passive income. Then why buy in melbourne right like that's just like the truly objective way to think about it and then you couple that with the fact that new state laws are about to come out from the state premier in victoria around rental caps um, around rent freezing and really the pendulum is swaying not that it was net ever for in the favor of investors but it's really well and truly on the side of tenants you're costs are now going up in a big way as a property investor in melbourne all of a sudden i think don't quote me on this but last year or earlier this year land tax increased in melbourne so now all of a sudden investors regardless of what they own are pinged with another i think it's 1200 a year in land tax if you're a property investor so all these things are really making it unattractive to invest in victoria um and so you know kind of putting all these points together and many others that I can't remember right now because it's pretty late in the evening, um, kind of suggests for me that there are much, much better places to invest than in Melbourne. Only exception is like if you're a high net worth individual, right? Everything that I've said goes out the the drain. If you've got five, $10 million cash to play with, you don't care about cash flow, you don't care about yields, then you could go ahead and buy in Melbourne. The growth is still not likely to outperform any other location, but at least you can say I've got a property in Melbourne.
1: I'm totally worried cash is the, cash flow is the king I mean also um sometimes I when I speak to my clients is especially when you purchase your first or first or like first or second properties buy something you can afford you can buy and hold rather than mm-hmm. you're buying one you know you pay a lot like as a residential property I'm not saying it's just a different trade of people thought it's different this is my dream house but sometimes from the bank perspective residential property that that is is the
0: liabilities
1: not yeah. like not the income definitely for sure so just be you know realistic a little bit not like rely on the emotion part
0: yeah um, yeah, yeah. yeah i like to i like to say I, don't, I didn't coin this phrase i don't know who did but i'm gonna steal it anyway um it's like cash flow is the engine and hmm. sorry capital growth is okay. the engine and cash flow is the oil you need both, you know, like without the engine, you can't actually create wealth. You can't take the car forward, but you can have the best engine, but without cash flow, you might have to sell that property. If you lose your job or your household budget stinks, you know, you need that oil to circulate through the engine to be able to hold that property. So both are equally important. And I think that you don't need to, not that I think like history and data has shown you don't need to make trade-offs. So don't just go for growth. Don't just go for cash flow. Get both in every single property.
1: Yeah. Most important do some homework before
0: you. Yes. Go. <laughs> yeah. okay. Don't be lazy.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you so much, PK, for joining us. And really appreciate for time and you know all those knowledge and information you shared with us tonight.
0: Thank yeah. you so much. No, I really appreciate it. I feel out of my depth speaking to a lot of CPAs here, but uh, <laughs> hopefully I. <laughs> you must some be so value. proud of
1: yourself, you know. <laughs> So yes, for um, many of you, if you are interested in, you know, find out more about PK, first thing, check out his pa- Facebook, you know, page. And then, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Join the Facebook group, like um, Australian yeah. Property Mastery with PK. Like, honestly speaking, I think um, I can make stuff up. I can, I'm fallible. I can be wrong. But the, co- the power of community, there's almost 40,000 people and there are people much more successful than myself as well. So I think mm-hmm. that, that group will serve to educate and inspire everyone
1: definitely right thank you so much for your time
0: okay thank you so much thanks yuki thanks appreciate it guys